I have the great joy of welcoming my mom, who is with us today. Mom, would you at least raise your hand, if not stand up, so everyone can see who you are. (laughs) She's right up here. She has come from Montana to celebrate her 85th birthday with me tomorrow. And of course, I think that's still young for her. Her mom lived to be 97. And of course, Moses lived to be 120, so I think that she has many more years ahead of her. But speaking of old age, I heard about three sisters who were all living together. One was 92, one was 94, and one was 96. One day, the 96-year-old was upstairs in their bathroom, and she poured a, a bath for herself, and she just was putting her foot into the tub, and she yelled down to her sisters, and she said, was I getting in the tub or out of the tub? And then the 94-year-old said, well, I'll I'll come up and help you. And she starts up the stairs, and she's like, was I going up the stairs or down the stairs? (laughs) Then the 92-year-old was sitting at the kitchen table. She was shaking her head. She had a smirk on her face, drinking her tea, and she said, oh, I hope I never get that forgetful, knock on wood. I'll come help both of you just as soon as I see who's at the door. That's what we all have to look forward to, isn't it? (laughs) Well, as we open the book of Deuteronomy, we're reading Moses' final words as he's getting ready to pass from this earth into the presence of the Lord, his God and Savior. And Deuteronomy is actually known as one of the longest farewell speeches ever written in human history. It's a long farewell speech. Moses is preparing to say goodbye to this generation of Israelites that have known God's faithfulness, but also he wants to remind them about their parents and grandparents who have also been unfaithful to God. He had a a huge responsibility to equip this next generation with the word of God. He wanted to make sure that they understood not only the Ten Commandments, but all of the other kinds of principles for godly living that that the Lord has been teaching them as they've been gathered together these many years in the wilderness. It's vital for each generation to pass along their faith and their spiritual history to the next generation. So through this series of sermons that we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see also that Moses is reminding the Israelites about God's covenant promise to them, that they are to be faithful. They're to be faithful witnesses to all the surrounding nations about who the one true God of Israel is. Obedience is the key for them. Because if they truly love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, then they will obey his word and they will follow his will. So obedience is key for them. They're going to be blessed beyond measure if they will simply obey his word. So what we're going to learn this morning is that obedience is our greatest expression of love for God. It's the greatest expression of love for God that we can possibly make is by obeying. Because when we obey, we're saying, God, I believe, I agree that your word is true. I trust that you are faithful. And I'm going to bring my whole heart, mind, and soul in alignment with that reality. And I'm going to live it out. And that is the greatest expression of love that we can make. In fact, in John 14, 23, Jesus said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. 
My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Is there anything more wonderful than God coming and making his home in us? So today we're going to talk about um, how Moses is reminding the Israelites to remember God's blessings. First in Deuteronomy 1, we're going to see that he's going to say, remember God's leading. And then in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, he's going to tell them, remember God's victories. And then in chapter 4, he's going to say, remember God's love. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Deuteronomy. We're going to jump into the first four chapters today. Now, when we begin, the people are living, they've been, they're now living in Kadesh Barnea. It's the 40th year after the Exodus. They're now poised to enter into the land that they should have actually entered into 38 years ago, but their rebellious unbelief in God has caused them to remain in this desert wilderness until the entire generation of faithless, faithless people have died, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, um, and Moses is still alive. So Moses is embarking on this series of sermons that is crafted to inspire this new generation to remember their history and to learn from the mistakes of their ancestors. It's been said that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So it's so important that they remember. I was thinking about how with the invention of DNA testing, how fascinated we've become with Things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, this ability that we have now to test where is, our, where is our origin? Who are we related to? We are so fascinated to know geographically sort of where did we come from, but also they can tell by these tests now what even diseases you're prone to get, which I'm not sure is something I'd really want to know. But we're a culture now that's fascinated with this information. And... Um, And Moses is telling the people exactly that. He's saying, let me tell you your history. Let me tell you not only where you came from, but what sins you're prone to repeat. He wants them to know. It made me think about how well we do capturing our own spiritual roots and passing them on to the next generation. Think about your family. What journals have been written that have have recorded maybe the miracles that God has orchestrated in your family of origin, or what great answers to prayer have been recorded for, for you to see what he's done in generations past, or are you capturing them for now to pass them on to future generations? What accounts of God's faithfulness need to be recorded and passed on to the next generation so that your children and your children's children can learn from your mistakes, or they can be encouraged by how faithful God's been to you when they're going through hard things? So in Deuteronomy 1, Moses is reminding the young Israelites about the leading that God has orchestrated in their lives from Egypt all the way now to the edge of the promised land. And I say they're young because if you think about it, the oldest Israelite now in this community is 57 years old. That is young, I'm here to tell you. Because if, if anyone 20 and older has passed away, then the oldest person 38 years ago was 19, and 38 years have gone by, so that's 57. That's a young community of people. So let me show you. First, Moses exhorts them to remember God's provision. And so I've got a map here for you to look at. Um, they've left, you remember when they've left Egypt? And they went down to Sinai. The red arrow there is Sinai. That's where 
um, the Lord revealed himself in great power. It's where he gave the law and the commandments to Moses. That's where they entered into this covenant relationship with God where God said, you will be my people. And they said, yes, and you will be our God. And this is where this relationship really began. And during that first year of living in Sinai, that's where they built the tabernacle. That's where the Lord established the Levites as priests. That's where the system of sacrifices was ordained, where the people would come to understand that the wages of sin is death, and they would come to understand that when there was sin, there needed to be a death to pay for that sin. And so God taught them about the sacrificial offerings, the shed blood of an animal that would provide for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, the blood of that animal didn't actually cleanse the Israelites from their sins, but they were saved by faith just as we are. Interesting, isn't it, that God was teaching them to look upon something and to be saved by faith in their belief in God's promises. You see, when they received the Ten Commandments of the law, it revealed to them how far short they had fallen from God's holy standards. And then the offerings in the tabernacle taught them that a sacrifice was needed for them to receive forgiveness for their sins and to be restored in a right relationship with God. Obeying God's instructions by following the system of sacrifices assured them of their forgiveness. But ultimately, those sacrifices in Moses' day pointed forward to the coming Messiah who would one day be the once and for all sacrifice for sin. So by faith, they were saved in their belief that in God's future provision, there would be a once and for all sacrifice for sin that was being illustrated in the temple sacrifices. In much the same way that we are saved in our belief of looking back to Jesus Christ, who was our once and all sacrifice for sin, that we remember even as we take communion on a Sunday morning. In both cases, Moses' people looked forward to the coming Messiah and the promises of God being fulfilled in the future. And we as God's people look back to the Messiah who came, who died on a cross, was resurrected and who provided for the forgiveness of our sins. It's so interesting because this is history. This isn't mythology. This isn't a story. This happened in history. In 1526, Moses was born. In 1406 BC, Moses is in the moment that we're in right here in history, 120 years old. Looking forward, 5 BC was when Jesus is believed to have been born. 30 AD is when he died and resurrected. So the people in Moses' day were literally looking forward to their Messiah coming in 1,436 years. Now today, on the other side of the cross, Jesus died and was resurrected in 30 AD. This is 2019. It's been 1989 years since Jesus was resurrected, died and resurrected on the cross. So you see, even in our day, the cross stands nearly in the middle of human history. And Moses' people were saved by faith as they looked forward. And the system of sacrifices gave them a visible illustration of their need for forgiveness by the, the death, the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice. And it taught them about the coming Messiah and what Jesus would one day do once and for all. And today we look back and know that the blood of Jesus, the shed blood on the cross, provided for the forgiveness of our sins and welcomed us into this relationship with God. 
The cross stands as a divine moment when God's redemptive grace was manifest in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see is whether you lived before the cross or after the cross, both require faith. Faith in God's promises and faith in God's word. So in the wilderness, God gives his people many instructions about how they're to live as his redeemed people who are completely set apart unto him. And his instructions enable them to have a very orderly society, which was so different than all of their pagan nations that surrounded them. This was just starkly contrasting to the barbaric behaviors of the peoples who lived in the surrounding areas around them. It's been known that that those other nations were involved in child sacrifice to their gods. They were involved in uh, prostitution and all kinds of sexual practices and worship. And there are historically recorded so many types of behaviors that these people did as a regular part of their society that are too gruesome to even talk about this morning. So God had been preparing his people how to live in this land that he had promised to give to them, the land of Canaan. All they had to do next was simply follow God's instructions, and he promised he would give them victory over their enemies as they stepped into this land. Moses says in verse 8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So Moses then reminds them of their rebellion. It's important that they know the story of their rebellion. Along this journey to Kadesh Barnea, Moses had so many different types of leadership problems to solve. One of the first problems he had to deal with was that there were so many people, far too many under his care to to deal with them wisely. And so the Lord had told him that there was a way for him to organize the people and identify commanders over them in groups of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands. And then later, the Lord said that he would provide him 70 elders to help with the spiritual shepherding of the people. So God was coming alongside and helping Moses lead this tremendous group of people across the wilderness. But the people, as we know, kept grumbling every time they didn't have something that they wanted, like food or fresh water, and so they would grumble against Moses. And we see Moses, remember, he was always interceding for them. He was always coming before the Lord and and begging for God's mercy and his grace. He knew that they had a stubborn heart and that they, were, they had grumbling spirit. And we, can, we know that Moses got pretty sick and tired of that at times. But God came alongside Moses and God strengthened Moses throughout. But nothing was more disheartening than what happened at Kadesh Barnea. This was the gateway to the promised land. And it was because of their refusal to walk by faith instead of by sight, they chose fear over unbelief and they lost the opportunity to receive God's inheritance. So for 38 years, imagine what they have missed. They have missed rivers of flowing water. They have missed tall trees, cedars and palm trees and beautiful trees that would have provided shade. They missed the abundant riches of food like grapes and pomegranates and figs and all of the agriculture that grows in that land. They had rich fertile land that they could have been tilling and cultivating to grow pretty much anything they wanted. If you've been to Israel, you know the land there is so wonderful for agriculture. And they would have had these fortified cities that they could have just moved right into with with houses, roofs over their heads and walls to protect them. They had all of that that could have been given to them 38 years ago, but instead they were wandering in the desert wilderness with none of these things because of their faithlessness. 
And so even though Moses had reiterated God's promises by saying this in verse 21, he said, See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Even though Moses had said that, the people didn't trust in the word of God and they wanted to send spies to see for themselves. And although God allowed it, doing his permissive will isn't the same as obeying his good, acceptable, and perfect will. Romans 12.2 talks about this. Paul warns us, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, instead of, for them, renewing their minds on the word of God that had literally been spoken directly to Moses in their overhearing many times, instead of renewing their minds on this word of God that had given them great affirmation and encouragement to go and take the land, they conformed to the visible indicators of their circumstances that elicited paralyzing fear. There were giants in the land. We can't go in. But God's commandment is always his enablement. If God speaks something, he, it guarantees you that he's going to enable that. He's not going to command to do something that he's not going to also enable. So God's commandment was his enablement to win the victory. All the people needed to do was trust and obey. And you know the story. Twelve spies go, ten come back, and they give a bad report. And so the people rebelled against the command of the Lord. And this is what Moses reminded us. He says in verse 26, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents, and you said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Wow. What happened? I mean, they trusted the Lord to bring them out of Egypt. They trusted the Lord to carry him thus far. Could they not trust the Lord to carry them into the land he promised to give them? Well, Psalm 78 kind of explains to us what happened. Psalm 78 tells us that they forgot all the wonders that God had done. They didn't remember his power. Aren't we also just like this? Don't we just so quickly forget what God has done? In Psalm 78, verses 10 and 11, it says, They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. And verses 42 and 43 say, They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. They forgot They wanted the freedom and they wanted the oppression and the good gifts of God's blessings, but they didn't really love the giver of those gifts. They took God's blessings for granted and they refused to rely upon the power of God's word. We can learn from them and what we can learn is that unbelief in God's promises will cause us to disobey his will. Unbelief in God's promises will cause us also to disobey his will. Now, there's a difference between unbelief and doubt. Unbelief is actually a matter of the will. Unbelief causes people to rebel against God because what unbelief says, it says, God, no matter what you do or say, I will not believe you. 
There's a, there's a hardness of the heart that says, you can't convince me otherwise. Doubt is a matter of the heart and the emotions. It's what people like you and I experience when we are teetering between faith and fear. There's this place where, where God is teasing faith out of us, but we have real reason to fear. And in that space between fate and fear, faith and fear, we doubt. But a doubter will say, Lord, help me with my unbelief. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. So when we're in a place of doubt with a sincere desire to believe, God tells us, let me, let me engage with you in that. Let me encourage you in that. Let me help you. But for the person who's hard-hearted and rebellious against God, God then often turns that person over to their own desires for judgment. The one thing we never want to hear God say to us is, have it your way. Can you identify an area of doubt or in your own life? Be careful about dismissing things that you don't understand too quickly. Instead, bring them to the Lord with a teachable spirit and say, God, I don't understand this, but will you show me? Will you meet me in this place of uncertainty? Allow him space to show you his character and the validity of his word. Especially as we look back into some of these stories in the Old Testament, we can say, God, I don't understand that. It's one thing to say, I don't understand that, and you can't convince me that you're a good God. Or to say, God, I don't understand that. Can you show me your character? Can you fill in the gaps for the things that I don't understand? Because history is his story. It's history. And if something doesn't make sense to you, trust him to show you and keep your heart open to learning. But beware of unbelief, which closes the door of the possibility of discovering something new about God that will actually enrich your faith. We need to always be careful that we check and double check our hearts before the, before the Lord. Because doubt leaves the heart open for learning, but unbelief actually bolts the heart shut and locks the door. And we can't obey that which we aren't convinced is a true promise from God that's rooted in his love. Where in your heart can you discern doubt? And where in your heart could there be unbelief? Ask the Lord to show you and invite him into that. Well, next, Moses reminds Israel of God's victories. And in the next two chapters, he wants specifically these young Israelites to know about the military victories that have, that have happened as they've ex marched from Egypt into this promised land. And they need some instructions about how they're going to engage with their neighbors in battles. Three instructions. So the first instruction, he says you're to avoid the Edomites. I have a map to show you where Edom is. Um, they were not to declare war on the Edomites because um, the Edomites are descendants from Jacob's brother Esau. And so Moses tried to go in and develop a diplomatic relationship with the Edomites. He asked if he could pass through their land, but the people wanted nothing to do with the Israelites. And so Moses then had to actually, if you see the line going around Edom, he actually had to take the people all around Edom, much further than he probably would have liked because he was respecting the conflict. He was actually being a peacemaker in this instance. Um, he knew that God had blessed the Israelites and he would care for all of their needs, even if they had to go around. In verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. 
He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. You know, it is easier to obey the Lord when we count our blessings. And that's what Moses is doing. He's saying, God, you've been so faithful. Yeah, this is not plan A for me. I'd rather just take the shortcut. But you've provided every single time along the way. And so we're going to trust you again. The second thing they were to avoid was the Moabites and the Ammonites. So the Moabites and the Ammonites were related to Abraham's nephew Lot. And so they too were off limits. It's so interesting. We don't have the full account of this story because God only preserved his story through the line of of Jacob, through the Israelites. But we see that God very intentionally had given these people a portion of land to be their own land. God is supreme over all the nations and he's the one who assigns land to his people. Sometimes we forget that the earth belongs to him. He's the one who determines where nations will be established and where people groups will live. We forget that we're only here for a moment and then we're gone. And the Lord reigns over the earth forever. So then the third thing he tells them is they're commanded to actually destroy two Amorite kings. Now, at first that was confusing. We're to avoid the Moabites and the Ammonites but not the Amorites, two different people groups. You have to look for that R in there. So these two kings' names were Sion and Og. And God is going to be establishing a pattern now for the Israelites where he is going to proclaim the victory. They're going to obey. They're going to go in and they're going to battle and they're going to, have, they're going to defeat the enemy. And this is going to set the pattern for how it's going to be when Joshua then leads the people into the promised land. God speaks it first to be true, and then they go and take action and have victory. So this, this is also going to set the tone for the people in Canaan as they see what happens on the other side of the border with, with Sion and Og. The people in Canaan are going to hear now also about these Israelites who have this invincible God on, on their side, and they're going to be trembling in fear and a bit undone when Israel comes into the land because of what happens first out here. So this is all very important. Verse 25 says, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Now, notice though in this story that Moses first goes to these kings in peace. He made a simple request to pass through the land, and his request was filled with such great respect for the people and for the environment. In verse 27, he said to the king of Sion, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. How respectful of Moses to have such a diplomatic conversation. But it says the Lord God hardened the heart of King Sion. In verse 30 it says, But Sion the king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. It reminds us again of Pharaoh's heart, doesn't it? 
Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart too. And remember that as God, his word came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart time and time again. And then God also hardened his heart. And so we don't know how hard actually Sion's heart was before the Lord hardened it. And interesting because many of God's critics, they take issue with this story. They take issue with the fact that God commands his people to go and to destroy these nations and to kill these innocent people. They question what kind of God would tell his people to go and to take a land that doesn't belong to them, to kill people, and to take all the possessions of a people that doesn't belong to him. Isn't that barbaric? You know, isn't it barbaric that God would tell his people to go destroy women, children, every living person in a land? Yes, it's barbaric. And we do shake our heads and say, Lord, help us understand this. But we can't presume to know the mind of God or the reality of these people from our vantage point. Secular history confirms that these people were wicked beyond our imagination. They were people who burned their own children in worship to their demonic gods. They were people who had no boundaries for sexual relations. There are things written in secular history that are horrific. Tortures, chaos, battles, things that they did to to each other, not just to the surrounding nations. They weren't innocent in their behaviors, but also they were not ignorant of the one true God of Israel. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived in this area before they were sent to Egypt by Joseph. They lived in this area. The people in this area knew about what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, God's judgment against sin. The people in this area had heard about the parting of the Red Sea, about this massive amount of people that had left Egypt and had been wandering in the wilderness. They had heard about the the cloud and the fire and the presence of God with this people. But remember also that God was working in the world to build a nation who would record the revelation of himself for Scripture, And aren't you glad we are here today because God chose to reveal himself, the knowledge of himself through a people, and not a perfect people by any means, a a normal, broken group of people like we are. He decided to reveal himself to them so they could record the scriptures, and he chose them to bring a savior into the world so that we could be saved and have a relationship with God these many years later. God had a purpose for choosing Israel, for protecting them, for moving them into a land. And this was his promise, as we remember in the beginning of our study that came out right in the beginning where sin entered the world in Genesis 3.15. And remember, too, that God knows man's propensity for evil. Do you remember back to Genesis when Noah's flood happened? How evil mankind had become in such a short period of time that God's wisest decision was to wipe out everyone on the face of the earth except for Noah and his family. God also knew that these pagan nations would pollute Israel's worship by leading them into idolatry, and this would threaten God's plan for salvation, which is why as you read forward into the other books of the Old Testament, you find that God is relentless at making sure that his people are punished when they 
dabble in idolatry. It mattered so much. There was so much at stake for them. They had to remain true to worshiping the one true God. So God tells them to go in and fight these battles, and he says he will be with them. In verse 21, he says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. I love this. It is the Lord your God who fights for you. And here's what I want us to learn. God doesn't owe us an explanation for his sovereign decisions. God doesn't owe us an explanation for his sovereign decisions. I bet we seem pretty prideful to God sometimes when we demand explanations for his ways. When we say, why, why, why? The truth is we don't have the capacity to understand the bigger picture that informs God's perspective. That's why the prophet Isaiah reminds us in 55 verses 8 and 9, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is God, and we are not. Isn't that what we've been reminded of this year in our study? God is God, and we are not. And faith takes into account our limited understanding of life and trusts God to be God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So where do you need in your life to trust God without explanation? What battles in your life do you need God to fight for you? Will you ask him for help? Will you invite him into your doubts and your fears and your conflicts? How are you holding back, maybe, from fully trusting God because you can't make sense out of something in your life? And you think, I don't understand this, and therefore I'm not going to trust you with it. Instead of saying, I don't understand this, and I'm totally going to trust you with this. Will you surrender your doubts to the Lord and help him help you believe in your unbelief? And will you acknowledge your limitations and just allow God to be God? It's okay. We are just people. We're humans. We are the created. He is the creator. Maybe someday we will be able to see our lives in playback and understand many more things that we don't understand now. But, but part of faith is understanding that God has a bigger perspective and we're limited in our understanding. Moses, he had to trust God too. He desperately wanted to go into the promised land with these people that he had led and sacrificed so much for. And when you read his prayer to the Lord, didn't you just say, Lord, come on, let him go. We just want him to go. He says in verse 23, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But God says no. And I was surprised, weren't you, that God is actually angry for Moses, at Moses for not listening to him. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's because God is bringing Moses to a better place. He's bringing Moses into his very presence. And if Moses really believed that, would he have asked for the lesser gift? 
Also, I think as you read ahead in the book of Joshua, you know there are many battles that are going to be fought as they enter into the promised land. There's going to be many hardships for the people as they go into the land of Canaan, and Moses is 120 years old. I think by God's grace, he lets him see the land. It's peaceful. He gets to see the beauty and see the expanse from this high point. But God spares him the hardships that lie ahead for an old man. Heaven is actually the best inheritance. And he's going to be welcomed right into heaven. I love that when we go forward into the New Testament, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses is there. Moses is there with Jesus. I mean, we know Moses is alive on the other side of the grave, and he is with God, and he appears with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. God had a much better plan for Moses. God doesn't owe us an explanation for his sovereign decisions. We just simply trust him. Well, lastly, Moses wants to remind the people about God's love. So he's rehearsed now the whole history of Israel. Now he wants to remind the people of God's character and his love for them because their future worship of him is dependent upon their understanding of who God is and why he is so worthy of their praise and affection. So Moses reminds them that their greatest act of worship is their obedience to his word. Chapter 4, verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes. And the rules, that's the word, that I'm teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you. He's saying, listen, hear. To hear isn't just to acknowledge that there's some sound going on in the distance. It's actually to focus on the meaning of these words with your whole being in order to receive the intended message and then respond to it in obedience. Paul tells us the same thing in Romans 10, 17. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the, through the word of Christ. So hearing and obeying God's word was actually the source. He says that you may live. Like hear and respond that you may live. So those in, in Beor, if we studied last week, those who had succumbed to idolatry, remember all the Moabite women that came into the camp and God had to then actually judge them by death, 26,000 of them for idol worship and, and uh prostitution in that time, we looked at that last week, those who had gotten involved in that had been destroyed. So Moses is now speaking to those who were literally alive because they held fast to the Lord their God and didn't participate in those activities. So now as they move into the promised land, their victory over their enemies is going to be rooted in their obedience and trust in God's word. Without faith, it's going to be impossible for them to conquer the land. But, you know, the same is true for us today because we today live by the word of God. Through God's word, through scriptures, we are actually introduced to God's person. It's how we know his character. It's how we know uh, the truths about our world and about his relationship with people from beginning to end. It's how we know his, the course of humanity, the course of human history. But it's also how we know Jesus. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that Jesus is the word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who is God. He is the living revelation of God. You think about words. Words reveal truth. They, they explain. They, um, they put meaning around something. Jesus is the word because he revealed God in person, in flesh. He put truth and meaning around who God is. 
And so because we know the word Jesus, we're entered into a living personal relationship with God. And because we know Jesus, we have received forgiveness for our sins. So believing in God's word involves the, the, te- the text, the scripture, and the person of Christ. And between the text of scripture and the person of Christ, we are given the gift of life for all eternity. So if the word gives us this kind of life by sparing us from judgment and death, how much more then should we determine to live by the truth of God's word obediently? Obedience is not a burden, it's a privilege because his word is love. John, 1 John 5.3 tells us this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. burdensome. Why do we always feel like obedience is such a burden? God says it's not a burden, it's a privilege because it's about my love for you. God's word is his revelation of his wisdom. And this wisdom, as we know, is foolishness to the world, but it is literally life to us. God's wisdom is our life. In verses 5 through 8 of chapter 4, Moses says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded you, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statues, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statues and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This treasured knowledge of God's wisdom would be not only the key to their success on the battlefield, but it would be their testimony to all the other nations. These pagan nations had been trying to find wisdom through the worship of their false gods, and they ended up in all kinds of spiritism and idolatry, which led to suffering and death for so many people. And here Israel was given God's commandments. They actually were able to know right from wrong. They knew God and how he felt about spiritism and idolatry. They had God's Ten Commandments that proved to clearly instruct them about two things, about how to love the Lord their God and how to love each other. And we also have God's instructions through his words. This is why we come to Bible study. We want to know God's wisdom. We want his instructions. He gives us perspective about our own lives from his viewpoint in his word. He gives us instruction about how to live our lives, and he sums it all up really simply. Two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the other commandments are fulfilled when we do just those two things. But best of all, we have God's Spirit who actually dwells in us as living tabernacles and helps us to obey. He helps us. We don't have to do it just by sheer willpower. We have a change of heart that actually wants to obey. And this is a completely different kind of life than people who don't know Jesus, who people who don't have God's wisdom to rely upon. And so when we rub shoulders in our lives with people around us, we also have the opportunity to reveal that we have a God who is near to us. And we have a God that we call upon in prayer, and it actually makes a difference. And that's intentional because God wants us to look differently. 
He wants the light of our lives to shine into the darkness of the people around us. And he wants our lives to be a testimony to those who are living all around us. Just like the Israelites, their life was meant to be a testimony to all the other nations. God is revealing himself to those who are lost in the dark through the light of your life. But best of all, you have the responsibility and the calling to pass the knowledge of him on to the next generation. Verse 9 says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. It's been said that, that the only thing that parents can take with them to heaven is their children. How is your life modeling faith to your kids? What do they see behind the closed doors of your home that reveal the depth of your faith and your trust in God? Are you modeling what it looks like to start your day in the word and in prayer? Do they see you when they wake up, spending time with the Lord? Do they see you trusting God in the hard places? Do they see you asking for forgiveness when you mess up? Do they see you seeking to be integrated in your words and your actions so that the things that you say about God and the trust that you proclaim actually is manifest in how you live that out when life is tumultuous? Are you modeling a life of submission to God and obedience to his word? Are you worshiping him with abandon for your children to see? Many people in your world will have opportunities to teach your children the things about Jesus. I love our creek downstairs. They do such an amazing job teaching our kids just what you're learning each week. And our Sunday school at River West is an amazing job teaching your kids. But only you can model what it looks like to abandon obediently follow him through the ups and downs of your life. And the truth is that in love, God gives his wisdom so we can obey his will and enjoy life to the fullest. It's in love that God gives us his wisdom so that we can obey and have the best possible life. I, it was a few, quite a few years ago, I woke up with a start one morning. It was just on the verge of dawn, you know, when you're still kind of in that deep sleep, and I heard the word of the Lord speak to me. It wasn't audible. It wasn't like it was a voice a few feet away. It was like a wind blew into my soul in my sleepy state, and it carried these words, if you will obey me, I will bless you. I remember just like, <gasps> started, startled, I was trembling. The last thought on my mind, first thing in the morning, was those words. And I first thought, what? What do you mean obey you? But you know, the thing about God is when he tells you something, he gives you the wisdom to understand what it meant. And I instantly knew what it meant. I had been contemplating leaving my husband. And it wasn't, I had good reason. It wasn't unwarranted. But it wasn't God's will. And with the words that God spoke to me came the wisdom that I knew I needed to obey. And what he was saying to me was, I want you to shut the trap doors. You have all of these escape routes from the pain of your marriage, and I want you to shut all of those doors, and I want you to put your eyes only on me, and I want you to obey me and stay in your covenant relationship with your husband no matter what. It wasn't like a promise you stay, and I'm going to make your marriage happy. It, there was no guarantee that God was going to change anything. It was like, shut those doors, and I need you to obey me and stay. 
no matter what. And I remember thinking, actually, it never even dawned on me to consider what God had, was saying to me about blessing. You know, he says, if you obey me, I will bless you. I never for once thought, oh, what's the blessing going to be? All I could do was tremble because God spoke to me. And I was so terrified that I had heard him so clearly. Well, now looking back, 25 years, I praise and thank him and worship him for his wisdom because he had a plan to bring wholeness and healing into my marriage that I never could have imagined. And he had a plan to bless my family. And he, he used all of that suffering and all of that pain to teach me really deep things about himself, to focus me on him, to help me rely on him in ways... I had to rely on him through some really, really hard times, not knowing how the future was going to turn out. And I still, in other capacities of my life, have to trust him in places where I have no idea how it's all going to end. But God was faithful to say, if you will obey me, if you will cling to me, if you will set your heart on me, I will bless you. And I have made a commitment in my life that I will do whatever the Lord asks of me, but I've asked for one thing. Please make it sure that I know your will. I don't want to follow the, the crazy thoughts of my own imagination. I want to know. And so God has been so good to clearly speak and call and direct my paths so that I know when I can follow him in obedience. And my life has turned out to be an amazing adventure along the path. So I want to ask you today, has God impressed upon you a need to obey in a specific area of your life? What wisdom have you gleaned from his word that is ready to be applied to a situation or a relationship today? Because obedience is truly our greatest expression of love for God. Would you stand and let's pray as we go out to our groups. Father, I'm just reminded of how much you love us. You have given us yourself. You have sent your son Jesus into this world to die on a cross for our sins. And all that you've asked is that we would believe and receive it. And we are, we are recipients of forgiveness and love and grace. And we receive the gift of your Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that actually enables us to believe and obey your word. You've done it all. And it just reminds me of our hard hearts that still want to shake a fist in your face and say, I don't understand, or want to have it our own way. And Lord, please help us. Pour out your mercy and grace on us. For each one of us today who's still holding back, in one way or another, would you help us to just release that to you and trust you? Would you help us to walk by faith? Would you give us memories that can recall your past faithfulness and believe? Would you speak your word so deeply into our hearts that we know exactly what obedience means in our individual situations? Would you call us to worship you with abandon? Would you grow us up in our faith? Would you help us to learn from the experience of Moses and the Israelites and be different? Be fully formed Christ followers in this world who love you and who radiate the joy and the glory of the Lord to all the people who surround us. And most importantly, Lord, we pray for our children and our grandchildren that they would see something so real in us that they would be compelled to believe because they have seen the living God in us. 
We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.